0: dictionary says that there are two phrases that we've been using since about 1380 to tell good stories. So for about seven, eight hundred years or so, we've been using these two phrases whenever we want to tell a really good story. And the story always starts with once upon a time and the story always ends with and they all lived happily ever after. It's that second phrase that's really important to me because no matter what I'm engaging, I need a happy ending, right? I know that there are the artsy-fartsy types who think that you know, stories should be darker than that and, and that's too simplistic and we need it to be sophisticated and a bit more realistic because life doesn't turn out that way. That's fine, you can save all that for me. Cue the cheesy music because I need a good happy ending. I need evil to lose, good to win, The bad guy to go down, the good guy to go up, the hero to get the girl, that's the kind of story that I like, right? It doesn't matter if it's a book, it's a movie, it's a story, I need to hear at the end, and they all lived happily ever after, which is why I love the book of Ruth, because Ruth ends by giving me my happy ending. Right? Ruth ends with the most beautiful, happy ending you could imagine. And today, that's what we're going to see. We've been walking for eight or nine weeks through these four chapters. And in these eight or nine weeks, we've walked through a great deal of darkness and difficulty. And in fact, I want you to hear, that darkness and difficulty only serves to make the light of Ruth chapter 4 shine even brighter. Right? I remember reading through The Hunger Games. And I remember being at many different times throughout that three-part series, at many different times wondering how this is going to end, and yet all the darkness in all those books just served to highlight the happy ending that I got at the story, and so I liked it. Otherwise, I was about to throw it out, right? Because what the darkness does is it serves as this beautiful black backdrop against which the brilliant sunlight of Ruth 4 can shine out. So we've been walking through these four chapters. If you haven't been with us, let me do you a favor and just quickly hit pause on our story and tell you quickly what's happened till now. When we started this story, we remember that the first words were in the days when the judges ruled over Israel. And if you remember, we said those were some really dark days. In fact, the the period of the judges was the sort of dark ages of Israel. Spiritually, socially, morally, they were messed up in every possible way. Oppressed by enemies, they were neck deep in sin. It was just the darkest of times. And in those dark days, if you remember back in chapter 1, we read that there was a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem meaning house of bread. There was no bread in the house of bread. So much so that a man named Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, doesn't really live up to his name because he doesn't really treat God as king. He leaves Israel, the land of God's people, and goes of all places to Moab. If you remember Moab is the descendants of a a people who came from Lot, one of the ancestors of Israel, sleeping, being drunk and sleeping with his daughter. And in that incestuous, horrific event came the people of Moab. And so Moab was outsider, foreigner, wicked, sinful, dirty, vile idol worshippers. And this Israelite family moves to Moab. And we remember, if you remember hearing the story, it starts with Elimelech and his two sons. Malon and Kilion. And we're getting ready for a story about these three men, except in five verses, all three of them are dead. Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Kilion dies. And now, in a culture and in a world where women are ignored and men and sons are prized, you've got three sonless widows emerge. You've got Naomi, you've got Ruth, and you've got Orpah. And what we're introduced to right in chapter 1 is the two big problems that's going to sort of run throughout the book. The two sort of struggles they've got to overcome. The two holes that need to be filled. And that is food and family. Right? That's sort of the, the big struggle of the book. How are they going to get food to survive? How are they going to get a family to survive? Because that's what they need. Right? If you're in Israel, you need a son who's going to carry on your name. If you don't have a son that's going to carry on your name, then your line ends with you, and you're sort of obliterated from the face of the earth. So more than anything, you need a son, and you need food. And so the story begins this quest of how are these two going to survive? Where are they going to get food? And where are they going to get family? And when we came to the end of chapter 1, if you remember, Naomi says, I'm going back home. And in that intense scene, these two daughter-in-laws Orpah does the sensible thing and goes back to Moab, whereas Ruth does the extraordinary thing. If you remember her poetic words, your God will be my God. Your people, my people, where you go, I will go. Don't tell me anymore to stay back. And so Ruth, now committed not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God, to Yahweh, says, I'm with Yahweh, I'm with Yahweh's people, and I'm with you, Naomi. Naomi. When we get to the end of chapter 1, we remember these two women show up in Bethlehem. Chapter 2, if you remember, is when Naomi is now in Bethlehem. Ruth wakes up and she goes right to work, which is they got to find out food. And so Ruth decides to go to work. She finds a field to glean in. If you remember, out of all the fields in Israel, she happens to go into the one field of the man who could redeem her, a, a term I'll come back to again. Right, And she stumbles into the field of Boaz. She works there. They have a wonderful encounter. You almost think things are going to be good, except you get to the end of chapter 2. Harvest season's over. There's no more run-ins with Boaz. No more food, and you're back square one. Food and family. How's that going to work out? Last week, if you were here, we walked through chapter 3 in that sort of scandalous midnight encounter, right, where Naomi, the mother-in-law, sets her daughter-in-law up on a date and gets Ruth to show up to Boaz's field in the middle of the night and they have that encounter and Ruth pleads with them saying, spread your garment over me. That is, make me yours. Marry me. Make me yours and, and be a redeemer to me. And Boaz, if you remember the scene, says, I will do everything you said as the Lord lives. And we're ready to get our happily ever after. Except then you get this curveball thrown in, which is, Boaz says, the only thing is, there's one relative closer than me, meaning there's a kinsman. There's a redeemer who is next in line before me. And so he has a right to redeem Noah, Naomi and Ruth before I do. And so when we got to the end of chapter three, there we are again. Now we know Ruth is going to get married. The only question for us is to who? Well, when we get to the end of chapter four, I want you to hear this. All our questions are going to be answered. This is not going to be one of those series finales that you hate. This is going to be every bow is tied perfectly, every loose end, every question answered. Because by the time you get to this chapter and its end, Ruth is going to be married. Naomi is going to have a baby. And if ever there was a story where they lived happily ever after, it's this one. Okay? So Ruth 4, verse 1, here's how it starts. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here, and he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here, so they sat down. So let me catch you up on what's happening. If you remember at the end of chapter 3... There's this introduced, this third figure, this shady guy. Who, who's this guy and that's now creating this love triangle so that you're not sure who's going to marry Ruth? And so Naomi said to her at the end of chapter 3, sit tight, Ruth. Boaz will take care of this by the end of the day. We're going to find out one way or another this matter is going to be settled. And that's exactly what you see. In 4 verse 1, you can imagine Boaz, who hasn't slept a wink that whole night, has just come off that incredible date, and now he's gone straight to the gate to meet this man. Now he goes to the gate, that's important, because the gate was literally the place where you came in and out of town. So if ever there was a a place to run into the man, it would be there. But moreover, the gate was the place where you did official business. For a transaction to be legit, for it to be official, you had to have it happen at the gate. And so he stands by the gate, and the text tells us, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now, behold is this word of surprise, shock. It's, it's sort of a, and it just so happened that the Redeemer came by. Now, we've seen that so many times in the book of Ruth. We're not even caught off guard anymore. We're not even surprised by the fact that the invisible hand of God is directing all things. He's been doing that in chapter 2. And now you get to Chapter 4. And it just so happened that the very man that Boaz had spoken about and the very man that he now needs to speak about just comes by. It just so happened that he comes by. And the text says, Boaz said to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now, here's the thing. He he sees this man who is the redeemer and he says, come here, buddy, sit down. Now, in our text, it says friend. In actuality, the, the original language, it's not really friend. In fact, there's not a real word to translate it. It's sort of Mr. So-and-so stops by, right? It, it's sort of a Mr. What's-his-face, what's-his-name, Mr. So-and-so, right? And, and that's kind of odd, and it's odd because the book of Ruth is filled with names, right? There's no shortage of names in the book of Ruth. We know Elimelech. We know his sons, Malon, Kilion. We know his daughter-in-laws, Ruth, Orpa. We know Naomi. And if that weren't enough, at the end of chapter 4, you're going to see this whole list of Jewish names, this entire genealogy of funny Jewish names. So why would it be that this one scene, you don't get the name of the man? Moreover, it can't be that Boaz doesn't know his name. This is a close relative. This is the man Boaz knew about. And so for one reason or another the author chooses not to give you his name, but instead to call him Mr. What's-His-Name, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Nobody. And and for us, we're not really offended by that because we don't like this guy, right? In in fact, when he showed up in the scene, we wanted to boo him. I mean, this is the the third part of the triangle. This is the the obstacle that could mess everything up. And so we we don't really feel bad for Mr. So-and-so, Mr. What's-His-Face, Mr. Nobody, But in a moment, you're going to see even clearer why the narrator himself isn't too high on this guy. Look look at what happens. Mr. So-and-so Boaz says, come here, friend. Come here, buddy. Sit down. And he gathers 10 of the elders of the city to sit down at the gate because he needs this to be official. He needs some witnesses. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So here's what Boaz does. He sits down, Mr. So-and-so, and he says, listen, here's the situation. Naomi, Elimelech's widow, our relative, has come back. She's got a parcel of land, and she's about to sell it. Now, you're next in line. So if you want to redeem it, here are all the witnesses. We're at the gate. We can make this happen right now. Redeem it. And if you don't redeem it, then let me know because I come after you. And after us, there's nobody to do this, right? Now, again, just like sons are important, land is so important. This is where you're going to get food. This is the survival of your family. And so there's this Old Testament provision that if you fall on hard times, a family member can redeem your land so that it doesn't go out of the family. And so that's what Boaz is saying. You've got a shot to redeem this family. If you're going to do it, do it. If you won't, let me know. I'm next in line. After us, there's nobody. And then it says, and he said, I will redeem it. Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Nobody, Mr. What's-His-Face goes, I will redeem it. In fact, in the original language, it's even more emphatic. It's I myself will redeem it. Now, pause for a second. From his point of view, this is sort of a no-brainer. This is easy. This isn't a difficult decision to make. For him, he's going to get to buy some land on the cheap, right? Naomi is a desperate, starving widow in a land where women can't make it without men, in a time where they wouldn't survive. And so he's going to buy some land for cheap. At the most, he's going to have to put room and board for Naomi for a little while, but what? She's old. She's up there in years. And, and, and better than that, she's a widow. She's not exactly going to get remarried. She certainly can't have sons. And so the most you've got to do is you get to buy this land on the cheap. You put up with Naomi for a few years. And when she passes, you've got this land for all these years of harvest and grain that you can pass down to your sons as inheritance. For him, it's a total no-brainer. So that he, and then moreover, he gets to look in Israel like a man who's redeemed the family. So he gets a good reputation on top. And so now he gets to say, I myself will redeem it." Now that's great for him. For us, we want to go, are you kidding me? Right? At this point in the story, we want to go, we know what this means. If he redeems them, that means that Ruth marries Mr. So-and-so. And at that point, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how good chapters 1 through 3 have been. I'm ready to toss the book, right? Because this what's-his-face is about to marry Ruth. And so there's a part of you that if you're reading the story, right, and the first reader would have been thinking, we know Boaz is a good guy, but what's he doing here? I mean, we we know he's not going to bend the rules. We know he's not going to go around and and do these things his way. but, But he's literally letting Ruth get away. And it's at that point where there's almost this tension built up in the story, and there's this pregnant pause, because if this man now turns to the witnesses and says, I'll do it, this story's done. And yet right there we find Boaz is godly, but he's not dumb, right? He knows what he's doing. In fact, what Boaz is, is a skillful negotiator. If it were today, he would be the godliest used car salesman there was. Because he is sort of roping this guy in, and he's setting him up perfectly. Because when this man says, I myself will redeem it, verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. It's sort of Boaz's way of saying, oh, by the way, there's one more thing I forgot to tell you. That is that when you get the land, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the, the widow uh, whose name you're going to have to keep on in your inheritance, right? He, he sort of at just the right moment throws in, oh, by the way, when you get the land, I completely slipped my mind to tell you, you also get Ruth and all that that means. Now, we've been saying for a number of weeks to be a redeemer w- was a costly thing. W- what it meant was that you had an obligation to keep the family line going by marrying this widow, having a child, and that child would not be your son, but the dead man's son. In fact, I've been referring that to you a bunch, so let me just let you hear it from the text itself. This is Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. It's a meaty section, but just hear it so that you get the background. Here's what it says. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, this is where it gets good, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. I love the Old Testament, right? <laughs> and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> right? That, that's the background. So so Boaz is saying to the man, listen, you've got a right and an obligation now to redeem this family. So here's what you have to do. You're going to acquire not just this land, but you're going to acquire Ruth. And when you do, here's now the deal. Now here's the deal in Mr. So-and-so's mind. Now I'm going to buy this land with my money. Money that would have otherwise went down to my sons and their inheritance. And then not only am I going to have to pay room and board for Naomi, who's old, I'm going to have to pay room and board for Ruth, who's young. And then I'm going to have to pay room and board for all of Ruth's kids. And then the son that's born to her won't even be mine. It'll be the dead man's son, and the land that I used my son's money to buy won't ever come back to me. In fact, it'll go off as his inheritance. And this whole thing shifts from an offer he can't refuse to one that he wants nothing to do with. That he can't accept. Right? Instead of increasing his son's inheritance. In every way. This is going to rob him in every way. You see Boaz. Presents this at just the right time. So much so. That the guy then. Verse 6. Then the redeemer said. I cannot redeem it for myself. Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. For I cannot redeem it. So this man. This Mr. So-and-so, who had just stood up and said, I myself will redeem it, now goes, on second thought, actually, why don't you redeem her and redeem it? In fact, I give my right to you. And in fact, if you read verses seven onwards, he literally takes off his sandal. We get that whole scene, except for the spitting in his face. He takes off his sandal. He gives it to Boaz and says, I have no more right anymore. And remember, the name of such a person is to be the house of the unpulled sandal. Right, which is sort of fitting to Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Nobody. We don't even know his name. And instead, redeeming Ruth proved to him to be too costly. It wasn't financially sound. It wasn't the prudent decision to make. It wasn't sensible. And so the only sort of thing that makes sense, the only logical thing to do is to walk away. And suddenly, for the careful reader it's like there's a flashback to chapter one, right? Where instead of two men who had a choice to make and one could walk away, chapter one told us there was two women who had a choice to make and and one could walk away. And and suddenly it's like this, we're reminded of the contrast between Orpah and Ruth. If you remember, Orpah did the sensible thing, the expected thing, and so she walked away. And in that, it only highlighted that Ruth did The unexpected thing. The extraordinary thing. The thing driven not just by what makes sense in the head, but what comes from hesed from the heart. Hesed from the heart has you taking all kinds of risks in the name of love. All kinds of sacrifices in the name of love. That's what hesed is. Hesed is a dying to self for the love of the other. And Ruth makes the most unsensible, most extraordinary decision in hesed love. And now... Mr. What's-His-Face does the sensible, expected thing, which only serves to contrast and highlight that Boaz does the unexpected and extraordinary thing. Because of hesed, he will bear whatever cost comes with redeeming Ruth. Being a redeemer is going to be costly. In fact, the word there, the original Hebrew word is goel, That's what a redeemer is. It's the Goel. And throughout the Old Testament, I want you to hear Goel is used over and over again to describe God, to describe Yahweh, to remind us that Yahweh is our closest of kin. Yahweh is our nearest relative who will bear whatever cost it takes to redeem us. Yahweh is Goel. Yahweh is through this story showing that I am a redeemer. Remember, throughout the story of Ruth, human beings are doing all kinds of things, but through it all, God is at work. Through Ruth's steps into that field, God was taking steps. Through Boaz's hands of generosity, God was being generous. And through Boaz's redemption, Israel is learning Yahweh is a Goel. He is the great Goel who will redeem his people. And of course, seven mile road, all of this is just a shadow. All of this is a shadow for our great Goel, our nearest of kin, our closest relative, who would bear whatever cost it took to redeem us, right? How can our minds not race forward to the New Testament and see Jesus Christ, our Redeemer? How can our minds not hear the words of Peter, who says, Don't you know that you weren't bought with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish? Don't you know, church of Jesus Christ, that you are his Ruth, and that he is your Boaz, that he is your Goel, he is your kinsman redeemer? And don't you know, church, that for Mr. What's-His-Face, Ruth was a Moabite, She was an outsider. She was an idol worshiper. She came from a bad background. And because of all that, she was a waste of his resources. And yet, what was a waste of his resources was a treasure to Boaz. That no matter what cost it cost, he would redeem. How much more then, Sema wrote, in the sight of a holy and perfect God, would you and I be nothing more than a waste of resources? a waste of heaven's effort, a waste of the sinless son's blood. And yet, you and I, bad background, shady past, sinful, not perfect, clean in any way, with no good resume, is seen by our Goel as a treasure worth redeeming no matter what cost, even if it meant his own shed blood. So this text is racing us forward to our own redeemer, and the great cost he would bear for us. As you keep going in the story, for the sake of time, let me keep moving. Seven to 10 is this great sandal exchange scene, and after that, Boaz announces to all those who are listening, I, I'm going to redeem Naomi and everything that belongs to Kilion and Malon, and I am going to redeem Ruth. I mean, you want happy ever after. We could stop right here, and I'm good. I got what I wanted. And yet the text keeps going because verse 11, listen to what it says. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord caps locks that's Yahweh. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be built. May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Pause there for a second. Because this is an incredible blessing. What happens is you had the ten elders, but all the passers by, this is Eastern culture, they're sorta of nosy, and so they want to find out what's going on. All the passers by find out there's there's transaction going on and so they all stop to watch. And when they do, they find out what has happened, and they can't contain it. They have to announce this blessing on Boaz. And what they say is, we're witnesses, so may the Lord, may Yahweh, make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who built up the house of Israel. Now you've got to hear that. What they just said is Ruth, the foreign scum, the Moabite, the descendant of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter— the idol-worshipping, foreign, no-good Ruth, they have just asked Yahweh, may you be like Rachel and Leah, literally the matriarchs of Israel. Rachel and Leah, between the two of them, have 12 sons. They're literally the moms of the 12 tribes of Israel. They literally built Israel. And they are praying that this foreign woman would be in Israel what Rachel and Leah were for Israel. They're literally praying, may you build Israel. May you have a legacy. May you have a dynasty in this land like Rachel and Leah, like our founding mothers, so may you be Ruth. I mean, you talk blessing of blessings by the people who would have formerly hated this woman, who would have had no part to do with this woman. May you be like Rachel and Leah. May the Lord build up Israel through your offspring. They had no idea how true their words would be. Right? May you be that way. Right? And, and they go on to say this thing about Tamar, which for the sake of time I won't get into. But it's this great illustration of God has pulled in all kinds of people for this story. And then think of this. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. I mean, four chapters, said Maro. That's what we've been waiting for. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife his wife. One pastor pointed out, you you just think through all the titles that Ruth has had in the book. Just think through all the things, all the labels Ruth had till then. Chapter one, she's the widow. Chapter two, she's the foreigner. In the field, she's the slave or servant. Chapter three, she is maidservant. And all the way through chapters one through four, she is Moabite. Over and over again. Won't let you forget that. And now, at last, Ruth the wife. Ruth the wife. We could stop here, and I'd be fine. I got my happily ever after. And yet it doesn't stop. It keeps going because there's still one more sort of tension. Right? There's still one more tension, which is Boaz redeeming Ruth. That's great. She getting married. That's great. The prayers of blessing. That's great. Remember, there's a small problem. Remember back in chapter 1, Ruth had already been married once. In fact, she had been married for 10 years. And in 10 years, she had no children. This isn't like 2015 and family planning and, and figuring things out. Then you would have wanted sons as quickly as possible. 10 years with no sons, hints to us, there's a problem there. And so her getting married is great. Her being blessed is great. Boaz loving her is great. But we've still got two holes to fill, food and family. Seed for the stomach and seed for the womb. And so there's sort of a a still attention, and yet then we read, and he went into her, that's Hebrew for they went to a honeymoon. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Remember, when we started the book of Ruth, we said, this is a book for really ordinary people. Because what happens in the book is so ordinary. Do you remember in week one we said, you know, this book has no signs, no wonders, no prophets, no miracles, no parting of the sea, no burning bushes. There's no voice from God. It's just ordinary. It's sort of like your life, my life. It's, it's a woman who gets up and goes to work, feeds her family, falls in love, gets married. There's life, there's death. There's just normal ordinary life. And yet in the four chapters of Ruth, there's only two scenes where Yahweh sort of emerges from the background to the foreground. Right? There's only two scenes in the whole book where the Lord is not just in the background, in the shadows. He sort of steps onto center stage. What are those two scenes? Well, there's two big problems in the book. Food and family. Seed for the stomach, seed for the womb. And the two times the Lord appears doing something in the book is what? The first time is Ruth 1, verse 6. Just hear it with me. Then she arose with her daughters to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And the only other time the Lord appears to actually do something here is and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. That's the narrator's way of sort of whispering to you, there's only one hero in the book of Ruth. There's two big problems, food and family, and there's only one hero who's going to answer both those problems, one hero who's going to fill both those holes. It's the Lord who's going to bring food, and it's the Lord who's going to give her conception. And so Ruth not only gets married, she has a son. And I go, what a story. I got my happy ending. We could stop right here. And yet it goes on, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may, your na- may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. The story doesn't end just happily ever after because we forgot about Naomi. And so what happens now is Ruth and Boaz sort of fade into the background. You don't even hear of them anymore. And who emerges is Naomi. She takes center stage. And it's sort of fitting because this story started with her it's sort of fitting that it should end with her as well. And remember what a story it's been for Naomi. Chapter 1, Naomi, remember her, who had just stood there, picture her in black at the graveside while her husband is being lowered down. And then again while her son is being lowered down. And then at that graveside again while her other son is being lowered down. And picture her in chapter 1 coming to Bethlehem Screaming to the women, the Lord has brought me back empty. And now picture her in chapter 4, as the women scream to her, Naomi, your hands are full. Picture the women now standing around her. This story started at a funeral. It ends at a birthday party because Naomi has a little baby bouncing on her knee. And, and the Lord has brought all of this back into her life. And the townswomen cry out to her and, and they say, You have a son now. And, and they say, You got that through Ruth, who is better to you than seven sons. I mean, you want a compliment. In that day, a mom wanted a son. That's fine. But to be a mom who had seven sons mean, meant you hit the lotto. I mean, y- you were literally, you could walk with your head Held high. I mean, you had a reputation. You had sons. You had security. A, a mom with seven sons would never lack for anything, she would be always taken care of. And the townswomen are saying, Naomi, you didn't have seven sons, but you had one Ruth. And one Ruth is better than seven sons. You talk about reputation. Do you hear her reputation? you talk about not lacking for anything being taken care of ruth would give her life to ensure your security and so this foreigner is now said one ruth is better than seven israelite sons and Naomi that's what you've got and not only that she has now bore for you a son and and hear that ruth gave birth but what do the women cry out a son has been born to Naomi Because she's been redeemed. Elimelech's line is not done. Right? This is a son to keep them going. And they go on to say, because the Lord has not left you without a redeemer today. And for a moment, if you're reading that for the first time, you go, okay, they're talking about Boaz. He's the Goel. But if you keep reading closer, they say, it's him. Who's the him? It's the boy that Ruth bore. That's the Goel for you, Naomi. Uh, what the townspeople are saying is, Naomi, through Ruth's offspring, is coming a redeemer who's going to redeem you in your old age. Your, your offspring is going to be the redeemer. And again, the women had no idea how true their words would be, how far-reaching their words would be. Because hear this, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him, don't you love that, the women named him. Not Ruth, not Boaz, just the excited town's women named the baby. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And they lived happily ever after. Are you telling me that this Moabite woman has been pulled in to be the grandmother of Israel's most famous king? And that's when you begin to realize, and at least even if we're lost on it, the first readers would have known what we just read is not just some cute little love story about this insignificant couple. We we literally just read a story that's not just for them, but for all of Israel, for all the world. I, I mean, we literally read of the beginning of the royal dynasty. We just read of King David's grandparents. This is not just some small story in the corner of the the world. This is David's grandparents. This this means, said that in the days when the judges ruled, that is the darkest period of Israel's history, when nobody even saw it, when nobody was expecting it, God was already at work to bring about Israel's best king. In the very time that was the darkest of times where it seemed like God had pulled back from Israel, God was at work in some remote fields of Bethlehem bringing about Israel's greatest kings. In the very days when the judges ruled, a king was emerging. Which would mean for us that even in your darkest days when it seems like God has gone into the background, he's at work. He is redeeming. He is working all things together for his glory and your good. When it seems like his hand is invisible, it's directing, it's guiding, it's moving all things together for our good. What a story. I got my happy ending, and yet let me tell you one more thing. Because Ruth is not just one book in its own. Ruth is one book in 66 books. And so thankfully the story of Ruth doesn't end there. In fact this same genealogy would show up again in Matthew 1. And when it shows up that passage starts I'll just read you the first sentence. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This story is not going to stop until not just the king a king but the king of Israel is born. Today's Palm Sunday. What do we remember that the crowd shouted when Jesus walked in? When the king of Israel walked in on a donkey riding through those streets, what did they shout? They didn't just shout, Hosanna. Remember exactly what they shouted, Matthew 21, verses eight and nine. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to who? To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That day was a shout about not just a king, but the king from the line of David. Son of David, Hosanna. Lord, save us. The Lord is going to save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Well, as beautiful as that is, there is no son of David if there was not Ruth and Boaz. And God swept this couple into his great and grand story and so seven mile road here's what i'd say to you today is the sabbath day it's the lord's day a day for your rest a day worthy for you to contemplate and meditate on the things of god it's a day worthy for you to take some time and think through the book of ruth and hear what has the lord been speaking to you over these weeks If maybe your life in this season feels like you're stuck in Ruth 1, would you allow Ruth 4 to remind you that's where God is bringing all his people? Even this week, Good Friday is sort of Ruth 1, but Sunday reminds us there's a Ruth 4 for God's people, that God will bring his people to glory. Right? God has a, a happy ending for us all. There is a redeemer for you. One who has not spared any price to save and buy you back. One who loves you at no cost, whatever it might be. So that wherever your story might be right now, I want you to hear this. Ruth's story gets stuck into the scriptures and the scriptures is the good news that God made a world that fell away from him but that he sent his son into that same world to bear its guilt to redeem it with the price of his own blood, to resurrect from death, and to come back so that we may be where he is and we may live happily ever.